Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Great episode today. Guest I've wanted for a long time. Uh, This is a guest that I've had in mind since before even starting this podcast. And so a really great episode today. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you rate, review, share with all of your friends and everyone you've ever met. Thank you very much. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. Misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm very excited for today's episode. This was uh, this is someone who, uh, as you, the listeners, know um, I'm I'm big into evolutionary psychology and biology, and this guy is is one of the first people who really grabbed my attention and got me very excited. And I've been trying uh, desperately to get him on for some time, but unfortunately, I don't come through Albuquerque, New Mexico, very often. And I was fortunate enough to make a trip through and did a show last night, uh, which he came out to and. Uh, found some time to sit down with me today. He is a evolutionary psychology professor at the University of New Mexico. Jeffrey Miller is joining me today. Hello, Jeffrey. How's it going? Hey, Shane. It's great to be here. <laughs> Thanks for. It's great to be here in your home. Um, it's it's uh, wonderful that I was able to uh, get a hold of you and get you on the program. Your your first book. Uh, and I've read all of your books, Mating Mind Spent, and I'm now just starting to read your new book, Mate. But your first first book, Mating Mind, changed the whole way that I looked at life. I was reading other things in the vein at the same time, but um, just the way, in, and we talked before we started recording kind of the uh, the challenges with with getting scientific information out to the public, and I thought... What also grabbed me about your book was it was very funny, and you you used a lot of real life, very relatable examples, to, and compared them with a lot of fun animal examples as well to explain um, a lot of these otherwise very complicated ideas. You did a very good job of communicating them. Can you tell the audience a little bit about? Uh, what mating mind was about, and and how you, why you wrote this book when you were fairly <laughs> when you were fairly young, right? This is kind of a bold book for for you to write so early on in your career. It was, yeah. I mean, I was I was doing my PhD in psychology at Stanford, and I got really fascinated by evolutionary psychology then, which was a really new field. I mean, it was literally just getting off the ground in the late eighties. Um, but even then, it seemed like that 
that science was kind of overlooking a lot of aspects of, of sexuality and mating and why people were attracted to each other. So people were starting to study physical attractiveness. What is it about faces and bodies that we find compelling? And that's great, and that's been a successful research program. But, you know, I was single, I was dating women, and I was really, really picky about women's intelligence and sense of humor and can they do anything artistic or musical? And um, maybe I was kind of a dick about it, but I thought this is something that needs explaining because both sexes are pretty choosy about this stuff. And and why? And I thought, is it new or or is this fairly ancient? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized our ancestors had probably been choosing each other for their mental traits, like intelligence or language or moral virtues or stuff like that for a really long time, for thousands of generations. And if they were, maybe that would help explain why modern humans are pretty good at being smart and articulate and creative. So, and yeah, so by the time I was in my mid-20s, I kind of had the mating mind idea. So I, I wanted to just, because intuitively, I think, when you first think about it, why are humans so smart? A lot of people would, would be like, well, we evolved to be smart because it's just better to be smart. Why wouldn't you just want to be smarter? And, and what's kind of the, the issue with that argument? I mean, the issue with that is, is evolution's had a really long time to, to develop um, intelligence or language if it was generally useful. I mean, if it helped survival the way that wings help survival. You know, wings have evolved at least a dozen different times. There's winged insects, there's bats, there's birds, there are winged dinosaurs. Wings keep popping up because it's really useful to fly away from danger. But Burning Man festivals exactly. are now sprouting yeah. wings everywhere. They're very useful. And those crazy Swiss guys who have the, the wing suits and, <laughs> and die in the Alps. <laughs> See, I, that's actually like, so I watched I that and I'm like, I want to do that so bad. That. I want I a squirrel suit. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> but, don't break your feet again. All right. So uh, go on. So, you know, if, if intelligence and language and, and morality was generally useful, we would have seen it popping up all over the place. You would see big brains and, and major intelligence in other mammals, other primates, birds. In, in, you'd see fossilized dinosaur skulls that had big brains. We just don't see it. So it seems like it requires some pretty special circumstances. And things like whales with these massive bra- brains, they're on the endangered, endangered species list. So Exactly. So, you know, whales and elephants have big brains, bigger than ours, but um, they don't seem to be doing a whole lot with them. Uh, it's hard to tell. But anyway, my idea was th- there was some unusual thing that happened in our lineage in humans over the last couple million years that resulted in brain size tripling and language evolving and us getting really smart and um and also being able to do these weird things like art and music that really don't seem to have much survival value Hmm. so those those were the sort of puzzles that i was trying to solve in in the mating mind book so uh so if, if kind of the, the point of, of life is, is this kind of survival of the fittest stuff, or, or as my listeners by now know, this more inclusive fitness of passing your genes on and, and caring for your genes, it does seem a little odd how, where Picasso fits into all of this <laughs> and, and, and music that everyone in the world is, it goes crazy over music and it's in every culture. And, and so, so how did this stuff take off or, or why? Well, I think you, you know, you definitely get some, some mating benefits if you're male and if you can do a lot of this creative stuff, you get groupies. So, like, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, who sired at least 70 children in his 50-year career of touring, you know, the South. And, and Gustav Klimt, the artist, a century ago in Vienna. You know, historians argue, did he have 30 kids or did he have 40 kids? It's hard to tell. It's clear he had a lot. So, in terms of quantity of mates, you can definitely get a payoff for doing these really sort of crazy things that don't help survival, like 
well, like stand-up comedy or like musical performance. <laughs> stand-up comedy is uh, well, uh, you're bound to uh, get in fights and whatnot after after shows. It's the opposite of, yeah. of survival skills. Well, presumably, there's a lot of women who go with boyfriends, and the women are like, "Why can't you be funny like that guy <laughs> on stage?" And then the guys have had a little bit to drink, and they're like, "Yeah, but I could beat him up." <laughs> um, but even for women, you know, if women have these skills, if women are funny, creative, talented, uh, they tend to attract better mates, guys with better genes and, and who make better boyfriends and better dads. So it also pays for women to be able to do this. And then you get boy meets girl. You get people um, assorting, you know, matching up on these talent levels. It might not necessarily be that... Um, musically talented woman always mates with musically talented guy. It might be musically talented woman mates with great scientist guy or great comedian guy, Mm -hmm. but people tend to be pretty choosy about this stuff. Um, and if you look at the patterns in online dating now, people do advertise these talents and they make a big deal out of it. And I, my argument is basically we've been doing that for at least a hundred thousand years, maybe a million million years. So, so if intelligence is, is such a big thing on the mating market, it is um, it, it seems a little odd that um, that art seems like a roundabout way to to find intelligence rather than rather than say a professor or something like that. And it, it, I remember going to a, uh, a, a, a a new Vanilla Ice concert, the the, the yeah. new for a joke. We went to Heavy Metal Vanilla Ice years ago. Just me and my buddies just wanted mm-hmm. to laugh, and it was ridiculous and silly. And we got what we wanted out of it. And there's you know probably 150, 200 people in this venue. And then afterwards, there was like a line of women lined up to see Heavy Metal Vanilla. This isn't Vanilla Ice at its peak. This is Vanilla Ice like crashing downward. Yeah. Meanwhile. There's no one like flirting with campus security to like blow a research assistant to get to a professor. <laughs> you, you know, you, you would think it would be the other way around if intelligence yeah. is such a valuable uh, trait. Yeah, absolutely. It's. I mean, it can be very confusing to think about this at first, but also if you think, well, how how ancient uh, is is music, for example. Well, we've got the, you know, prehistoric bone flutes from 30,000 years ago. We've got um, some evidence that, you know, vocal music, instrumental music, drumming, dancing are universal across cultures. So they probably evolved at least 100,000 years ago. So in terms of ways to demonstrate your intelligence, music has this, this depth in terms of time. And it's, that, that means it also has an emotional resonance we're sort of prepared to find talented musicians attractive because that's been happening for hundreds of generations. Whereas being a professor, like that's a new thing. That's only been around maybe 500, a thousand years. So neither women nor men have any instincts to, to go, Oh my God, he's tenured. That's so hot. (laughs) (laughs) It's just we haven't had time to evolve those mm. emotional, romantic responses. Um, art, though, also seems pretty old. I mean, we've been decorating our bodies with red ochre pigment for at least 150,000 years. We've been making, you know, cave paintings for 25, 30,000 years. We've been wearing jewelry, like little shells that are uh, have holes in them, necklaces made of, of shells for at least... 20 or 30,000 years. I remember being struck by um, this, uh, the idea of, oh, and now, now the word is, is uh, slipping, but, but like the arrowhead kind of, uh, kind of thing that, that oh, is the found. Hand, that, the hand axe. The hand yeah. axe, that intuitively you would think this is a weapon, mm-hmm. um, but, but some of these things were, were possibly too big to be weapons, and, and what you're actually advertising is, is your ability to shape this in, in kind of a symmetrical way. And why, why does something like that advertise um, your intelligence or quality in the first place? It's basically because it's hard to do. I yeah. mean, <laughs> you know, humans have been making 
well, not humans, but our ancestors have been making hand axes since about one and a half million years ago. Um, and the weird thing is we didn't get any better at it for a million years. We just kept on doing the same damned thing for almost a million years. But if you've ever tried to do flint napping, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's a skill that takes kind of years to learn. And being able to make something out of stone that's a teardrop shape, that's symmetrical in two axes, like it's, you know, you lay it down and it's symmetrical, you look at it on the edge and it's symmetrical, that's really hard to do because stone is hard to work and, and you're not working it with, you know, metal tools. You're just whacking at it with other um, stones or antlers. So if you're smart and creative and you can learn quickly, you can do a good job at that. But let's say your mom and dad were, were brother and sister, <laughs> your right. brain's a little messed up and doesn't work quite right. You're just not going to be able to make a very good hand axe. And people will be able to tell. They'll look at it and go, that hand axe sucks. You must be kind of stupid. Mm. Oh, well, I, I really liked this idea of kind of the handicap principle, this idea that um, that to kind of advertise how how good you are at something it essentially has to for this you have to pay this cost for it somehow whether whether it's been years of training or or just genetic quality or whatever and and, and the idea of of brain health being this very reliable indicator of this because of how susceptible our brains are to having these genetic abnormalities or getting hit and dropped on your head when you were a baby, yeah. which I'm sure happened quite a bit more back, back in when our ancestors were. Yeah. Babies falling out of trees. That is a thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, it, Another thing that I liked that, and I'll probably skip around a little bit between Mating Mind and the new book Mate, because I just started listening to it, was this idea of um, of of how intelligence can be shown in a lot of different ways, and there's a lot of different kinds of intelligence. Because I, I would sure like to think of myself as an intelligent guy. I don't think I have too crazy of delusions. I don't think I'm the next Einstein or anything like that. But at the same time. There's certainly things like we were talking about music, like dancing, for example, that if anyone saw me dancing and and this was our one way to advertise intelligence, you know, I would I would be in a very serious care program. Uh, You know, I would I would need to be looked after. Yeah. The good news for young people is that there's so many different ways to display these things. I mean, some of them are not very romantically compelling. So if you get really good at chess. That's a great intelligence indicator. You just cannot become a grandmaster of chess without being really fucking smart. Um, and I've met a lot of chess grandmasters, and they are really smart, a little socially awkward. But, again, nobody looks at a chess prodigy and goes, I must have his babies. <laughs> yeah. Like, he is so hot. <laughs> I um, play board games all the time, and and that's and that's something that I have to like wait to reveal if I yeah. if I'm with a lady until we're until we're a ways into it, and then I can be like, hey, sometimes me and my friends play these dorky yeah. board games. Yeah, you don't lead with Settlers of Catan on Match dot com. So you do have to find ways of displaying intelligence that are kind of intuitively compelling and and. And all that really means is find find the ones that are evolutionarily ancient, which is basically, again, um, humor, music, art, but also things like being socially sensitive and smart and understanding other people's beliefs and desires, or just being good at practical stuff, um, not necessarily changing the oil in your car, because that's relatively new, but just understanding how the world works and being able to fix things that are broken and being able to make things that require skill. That's pretty compelling to both men and women. Um, so when you're, you know, if you're in high school or college and you're listening to this and you're like, how can I become more attractive? Um, think really carefully about what could I do that I couldn't do if I was dumber or less creative, but also, what could I do that would be kind of instinctively 
appealing to the other sex or the same sex if you're gay or lesbian, mm. whatever it is. Uh, yeah, you made you made the interesting point that that even if uh, you know it, just picking one thing to start out, if you're if if say you're starting from scratch and you want to be a more interesting com- conversationalist. Uh, e- even just picking something like football that you're already into, just making sure that you have this understanding uh, that that you're able to be able to teach it to someone else and explain how it works without without boring them to death or confusing them. Yeah, I think um, that's something I never bothered to do because I was never that into spectator sports. Right, but me either. If if I had been even a little bit. Um, I made this little box where I was like, there's serious intellectual stuff where you can read about it and learn about it. And then there's all the other shit in life that isn't even worth learning about or reading about or, or watching YouTubes about. But, you know, if you're into football, basketball, skateboarding, whatever it is, there's always going to be some great documentaries on Netflix. There's going to be great nonfiction books you can read, biographies, um, you know, blogs, online articles, all that stuff, you're allowed to learn about what you're passionate about. And that'll help you be able to convey that passion to whoever you meet. Especially if it's something like music, where, where one, now you you got, everyone likes music. And and if you happen to meet someone that has these same musical interests, and now you've read this person's autobiography or whatever, and and you've, you've studied a little bit of music theory, and you're able to explain it in this interesting way, um, that, that might be a, a, a very kind of safe and interesting way to advertise your intelligence. Yeah, I mean, if, if, say for the sake of argument, you're into dubstep like me. There's a huge difference if you meet somebody between saying, well, I'm into dubstep, and they go, why? And you go, don't know, just like it. (laughs) It just makes me feel happy inside. Versus saying, well, I just like it, but also blah, 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 blah. Here's a nice, short, compelling paragraph about why I think it's cool. And then even if they didn't think it's cool beforehand, they'll think, Wow, at least he can he can explain. At least he's thoughtful about it, um, and that's important because that means in the future, if you become um, her boyfriend, then you're going to be the kind of boyfriend who has broad interest and keeps learning new stuff and stays interesting and doesn't get stuck in a rut. Yeah, I think the the uh, kind of practicing. Practicing explaining it is important because uh, for me, I I love reading about science, and obviously, you know, I'm going around talking with scientists, which which helps me just be able to communicate a little better in general, um, and helps me put myself out there, which builds confidence and everything else. But it, but it's definitely the more that I learn, the more I've transitioned into watching a girl's eyes glaze over when I start using, trying to show off some jargony terms or yeah, whatever yeah. to all of a sudden being able to talk intelligently about the human condition and why we, why we do behave these various ways in these certain social situations that I might find myself in. And, um, and, and so there's, there's definitely a difference between knowing the stuff and and maybe doing well on a test and figuring out ways of trying to communicate it so that uh, it's accessible to to others. Yeah, and also having a good insight into what what the other sex will actually be interested in. Mm-hmm. So a lot of guys uh, particularly after a certain age get really into military history, right? And they <laughs> love reading all the books about World War II whatever. <laughs> this guy's just talking about Hitler all, all the time. Like it's the third date and this is the third time this woman's had to sit and listen to Hitler for three hours straight. Yeah, that like, might get a little only, old. If only Hitler hadn't gone after the Crimean oil fields, he could have won. And, and like, yeah, most women do not care. It's a turn off. So you have to select what you're going to, you know, learn about. And in, in fact, in my scientific career, I'm often guided in terms of, you know, what research I work on next by thinking, what would it be cool to talk about? Yeah, you uh, you sent me, uh, I thought this is very interesting because this has kind of been uh, along the 
the line of uh, stuff you've been working on for some time. But but what's this what's this new art project that you're doing? Something with a museum. Um, I I went through it and I read all the little uh, <laughs> the the little descriptions under the uh, under the pictures and everything, but I didn't uh, I, I didn't have much time to prepare. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's a long story, but the brief thing is, I'm I'm guest curating an art exhibition that'll open this this November. At, Where um, this wonderful museum, private museum called Museum of Old and New Art, Mona, in in Hobart, Tasmania, down in Australia. And it's a great museum. It's it's sort of got a very strong evolutionary theme. Um, there's a lot about sex and death in the art that they've collected. And uh, this exhibition in particular is about why did art evolve? What are, what are the origins of art? And what are some good theories to explain it? So they invited four um, academics to sort of curate their own little sub exhibitions. So it's me and Steve Pinker from Harvard and Mark Changizi, a neuroscientist and Brian Boyd, who's sort of a literary theorist. And we each have our own little pet theories about why art originated visual art. And so we've each been selecting works over the last year with the museum staff and they do 90% of the work. They're writing letters to other museums like, can we borrow this? And how can we arrange the shipping and the insurance and all that shit? And um, I just write these essays. And, and it's been really fun because for me, you know, I'm used to making my argument through either popular science books or technical journal papers. Mm-hmm. And here I have to make my argument through literally selecting works of art and writing the little blurb about them and explaining them to ordinary museum visitors, which is a real challenge. Like, how do you express an intellectual idea through selecting different kinds of old or new art? Um, it's been a fascinating challenge. I think the resulting exhibition will be great if any hap- anybody happens to be in Tasmania in November through <laughs> next spring. It's worth a visit. Um, I'm sure it'll get a lot of publicity and people will be able to read about it. Uh, I think nobody's yeah. ever done anything like this before. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting. So like a good example of this, in my mind anyway, is is the, uh, what's that, some of those old ancient statues where they had like the fertility goddess or whatever, where, yeah. it, because I, I'm, the, I'm the sure Vena, people have seen yeah. something like this, yeah. uh, come across this on the internet or something like that. And it's, it's kind of this exaggerated form of, of the female body. And, and, and what, what is that? Saying so, uh, this is the kind of art that our ancestors were ma- making. What, in your view, is that saying about um, what we what we looked for? Yeah, the, the the hilarious thing to me about archaeologists is they they dig up these things like these Venus figurines, mm-hmm. which are basically like little like five inch high statues, basically of Nicki Minaj. Right? They have <laughs> huge butts and big boobs, or Kim Kardashian, big boobs typically not even any facial features. And the archaeologist will go, oh, it's a fertility symbol, and it must represent the, the prehistoric you know, spirit of the goddess, and they must have been worshipping these little figurines. And I was thinking, no, look, if you're an adolescent um, you know, human 30,000 years ago and you get one of these things, it's, it's porn. It's, yeah, porn. Yeah. it's hot. It's the hottest thing you could find apart from a live woman. And they are crafted carefully. They have a lot of symmetry and detail, and they're hard to make, and and they're impressive. But, yeah, they're just kind of sexy little objects. And then there are a lot of these other objects that the archaeologists call batons, which are about six to eight inch long (laughs) cylindrical things with rounded ends. And you look at them and go, come on, it's a dildo. (laughs) It's not a baton. It's a dildo. Um, so that was the rice mixer or something <laughs> yeah. like that. It's for, yeah, it's for grinding corn. <laughs> yeah. So the archaeologists, they bend over backwards to avoid talking about the kind of sexual dimension of these works. But to me, if you look at a lot of the original art that people were making, um, it was mostly body ornaments to make you look sexier, like the necklaces. Or it's these depictions of people with exaggerated 
um, sexual ornaments like brass and buttocks or penises. Um, a lot of the cave paintings are also pretty much, you know, R-rated or X-rated. Hmm. And they don't typically get shown in, you know, the art history textbooks because we, we mustn't let the high school students know <laughs> that basically, you know, the first application of any new visual medium is always porno. Right. But that, of course, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. It's also, it's also interesting kind of how the features are exaggerated. It's, it's, uh, it kind of reminds me of, of you can watch um, anime now and all of these features are you know there's like this monster boner and all all of the breasts mm-hmm. and everything else are are so exaggerated it's just this this exaggeration of our own uh instincts and preferences yeah so uh, and you can take a pass on this question i don't know how far along you are on the project but i i just for my own curiosity what are uh, what's pinker and and these other people what are what are just a brief summary of their their views. What are the other accounts of of how this visual um, art kind of evolved? I mean, Pinker's view is 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 basically still his uh, his so called cheesecake of the mind idea that human brains are are just sensitive to certain things that are pleasurable. Like cheesecake has a lot of fat mm. and sugar, and so you taste it and you have this instinctive preferences for fat and sugar. Cheesecake didn't exist in prehistory, but we've invented it because it tastes great. And so it's just hitting our sort of hot buttons in terms of our pleasure systems. And his argument would be visual art does that as well, that it's not necessarily that most humans in prehistory were making much art, but now it's a viable career and the people who are good at it make a living and, and the rest of us are just kind of vulnerable Mm. to visual beauty almost like a spandrel effect or yeah something? it's a spandrel okay. effect exactly yeah mm. um mark changizi i don't exactly understand his his view yet um brian boyd is really focused on narrative and storytelling and the way that visual arts can kind of help you um you know wrap a, a narrative around your life mm. or around a, a, a clan's collective life and and that's sort of his his emphasis. He sees a lot of overlap between visual art and and literature and poetry and storytelling. See, that's kind of interesting to me because as someone who's a stand-up, as someone who has definitely benefited reproductively, or I mean, I don't have kids, but would have, you know, sans birth control, um, from from this, you know, I was an incredibly shy kid, never knew how to approach women. I still don't really, unless I have enough drinks, and and um, and I'm completely uh, just oblivious to female <laughs> females approach me and I, I don't I don't know what kind of success I'd have without my stand-up career certainly there's it's a very reasonable argument to me that that art in general is advertising these various traits intelligence maybe and uh, obviously being included in that um, confidence other you know other things um, social status but but I was thinking about this uh, just over the last couple of days, you know, thinking about talking with you, and, and there is an aspect of of art too that that is also a bit about self discovery and self examination and and trying to develop um, a better understanding of the environment that you are in, and a lot of it's creating metaphors, which I think is something that. Like if you look at the kind of stuff that you dream about, it does seem that our brains do kind of attach to these metaphors to figuring out how to navigate yeah. uh, life. So I think that's in addition to being sexually selected for, I do think that there is some sort of you know advantage to uh, like even you who you, you study mating. But within studying mating and, and making yourself more attractive to others and everything else, I also think that there there's probably a lot of self discovery along the way that uh helped you in other domains yeah i mean there's what's really not very well understood yet or not not very well researched are the kind of what are called cognitive instincts the curiosity and openness to to new ideas and experience and the the passion for understanding ourselves and understanding human nature and the universe 
Um, we don't really have very good models for how that works. We don't really know how it influences our um, our passions for art or music or comedy or storytelling. And no doubt there's a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. But like I've used sexual selection and mating as my lens for understanding these things, partly because biologists have already done all the hard work over 150 years to develop the theories that I can just sort of pick up and use. Right. Like just going to Home Depot and, and getting a bunch of hammers. Like they're ready for for application. Um, but to understand things like, um, you know, the passion for self-insight, you'd have to literally invent your own theory of why that's a good thing mm. in terms of promoting your survival or, or reproductive success. And a few people have tried, but, I, you know, I don't think any of them have really succeeded very well yet. Well, I did like the point that you made in in Mate. Um, and again, I, I haven't gotten through all of it just yet. But um, but you made an interesting point about, about it being attractive to females, uh, kind of uh, being able to um, or being open to new experiences and trying out new foods and new restaurants and uh, exploring new activities and and so I really liked the point that you made about that. Could you explain why that might be more attractive to a female than, than say, someone who has grown up in their same small town and, you know, took their uh, took over their father's business and, you know, has, has never really gotten out there and has been doing basically the same thing with the same views and amongst the same social group their whole lives? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why a woman might want a boyfriend who's got um, a high degree of this uh, this openness to experience, which is one of the, the main personality traits. So openness means, yeah, you're interested in new ideas, new people, new foods, new cultures, um, new hobbies, potentially new professions. And you're willing to be flexible and keep learning. It's like you're you're a continual lifelong learner rather than getting stuck in a rod at age 20. Why would that matter to a woman? Number one, you're unlikely to be identical in terms of your tastes and preferences and interests to any particular woman. Mm. And she would probably like you to take an interest in her life. Mm-hmm. And if your, attitude, <laughs> you know, if your attitude is like, okay, whatever, you're into flamenco, I don't give a shit, I don't want to learn yeah. about flamenco, then it's a real handicap because you can't, do stuff that's that she thinks is fun together yeah you gotta end up having your man cave or you can do your dumb guy stuff so she can yeah. do her dumb girls you know i'm projecting in in their minds what is you know <laughs> exactly and then the other thing is just boredom if you're thinking about a long-term you know pair bonded relationship that lasts at least a few years or long enough to start raising some kids together she's going to get bored with you and you're going to get bored with her, not just sexually, but socially and in terms of activities and interests. So if she meets you and in the, you know, the first half dozen dates, it becomes clear that like you have your interests, whatever at age 25, and they're going to stay the same for the next 50 years Hmm. and you are not going to grow and change. Then she's going to be thinking, okay, by age 30, I'm just going to want to pull a, put a bullet in my head. This guy's going to be so <laughs> tedious. Whereas if you're the kind of guy who's like, well, I, I was into this thing last year and I kind of mastered it and got good at it. But then I got interested in this other thing this year. And, um, next year I'm planning to do whatever, you know, mountain climbing or scuba diving or getting into this new genre of music. Then she has the confidence that, um, Number one, you're going to stay interesting, meaning also you'll stay attractive sexually and romantically. And also, number two, if you have kids, then the kids are going to have high openness. Mm. And they'll be fun. They'll be fun little kids. They'll be into all sorts of new things. You'll go, hey, kids, want to go see the Titanosaurus at the Natural History Museum? And they'll go, yay, dinosaurs. Right. Versus, no, I just want to reread Harry Potter for the tenth time. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It seems like it might have, um, it might be a good indicator of of some important kind of inclusive fitness goals as well. Because if you think about 
almost the same set of genes being these hunter-gatherers and then early agricultural societies and and the same the same basic DNA has been a cowboy has been a has been a king has been a, a poor person has been to the moon has been to Antarctica has been working in a factory our our it it seems like our we've kind of evolved to be exceptionally flexible and adaptable and uh and and perhaps that's a way to advertise that trait yeah absolutely i mean if you think about you know, in America, what did it take for most of our ancestors to end up here? Um, well, the ones who came from Europe, at least, it took a crazy amount of openness to go, okay, I'm going to leave my little village in Lancashire or Bavaria and go across the ocean when that was not just a eight-hour plane flight. That was months at sea when you could die. And, like, that took guts and openness to new experiences in a, in a, in a big way. Mm. Um, which is one reason why Americans on average score a little higher on this trait than the ones who stayed behind in Europe. Oh, that's interesting. For example. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, so, so let's look at the other side of it because all this stuff is making, (laughs) making me look unfairly good because there are being someone who's exceptionally open and always, I always have a new hobby and always am traveling and having new experiences and trying new foods, but there's the other end of it, which is kind of like the commitment, uh, aspect and the, and the willpower aspect, but, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? What, why why females might uh, find that the, the the other side of it to be a, a little more attractive? Not let's not yeah. say the other side of it. Let's just say um, yeah. Yeah. dependability uh, in general. Yeah. So in the mate book, we we emphasize we've actually got a whole chapter on sort of displaying your intelligence and good ways to do that that are romantically compelling, like the music rather than the chess. Um, and then we've got um, a chapter on willpower that's about conscientiousness, which is a personality trait that's about making plans and following through and showing up on time and honoring your commitments and, and, you know, looking after people and not forgetting to pick your kids up after school and stuff like that. And, um, both sexes also like willpower. They like conscientiousness, reliability, dependability. Um, now that sounds like it's, opposed to openness mm-hmm. or like the opposite of openness but actually those two traits are almost independent like they're statistically independent you can have someone who's low openness and totally flaky like they're stuck in a rut and they're lazy <laughs> and they don't show up on time <laughs> that makes right? sense. Yeah. and then you can have people who are very high openness and always into new things like whatever steve jobs elon musk um you know, a lot of contemporary artists and they can be extremely reliable, Mm. but also very open. Um, and the combination of high openness and high conscientiousness is super attractive to both sexes. Um, also the willpower relates to, uh, this other chapter we have called romantic proof, which is about how do you show you're committed and passionate about a particular relationship, a particular person. And we kind of analyze, you know, what does it take to give good romantic proof, to reassure somebody this is not just a one-night stand. I'm actually pretty serious about this. Mm. Yeah, I, I very much enjoy this, uh, the, the book so far. And it's, uh, you know, this is, this is stuff that's based on ideas that I've already read plenty of books about, but, but the very practical application of these ideas is, I mean, this is very, very hip. Anyone can get this book and understand this. If you're a teenage boy listening to this, or if you're a 40 year old man, you're, you can, you're going to be able to understand this and you're going to pick up, even if it's things that, that you may have seen in, other places before i think uh, i think just the way that you phrased some of the stuff like like coming to mind was the idea of of confidence so we've all 
read this, that confidence is very important in, in life and that you just have to, you know, so, but a lot of the advice that you get is just, you know, just believe in yourself more or, or, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the kind of standard self-helpy kind of advice. But I really liked your idea of the, the having starting with meta confidence and and going from there can you talk a little bit about that because it's just something that really struck me as being useful yeah i think the standard advice particularly to young men about building up their confidence is just dead wrong it basically is a sort of self-esteem movement um set of 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 platitudes that say you're a unique snowflake and you should respect yourself and and you should just tell yourself positive things and then you'll be able to approach random super attractive women in bars and and feel like you're you're worth them talking to and that just it really does not work empirically it doesn't work and the reason why it doesn't work is confidence is a reliable signal it's one of these handicap things it's hard to fake our brains have evolved not to be able to trick us into having confidence if we're not worthy of being confident. Mm. So the way to build confidence in doing something is to get good at it, get genuinely good at it. If you want to be confident about musical performance, there's one route to doing it. Practice a lot and then perform a lot. And then you'll be confident. And you will not be confident before that, nor should you be. Right. Uh, The way to get confident about sex is learn about sex and read about sex and do a lot of sex and get good advice from good lovers. And then you'll be good at sex and then you'll be confident. Um, And there's no shortcut. Yeah. And, and if you think there should be a shortcut, then you don't understand, you know, how women and men evolved kind of with each other over, over hundreds of generations. um, So that each of them could kind of pick their mates carefully and, and, you know, choosily. I, I really liked this idea, though, and specifically the meta-confidence where, okay, you, you're wanting to go from zero to something, and you have to start somewhere, but this idea of, of kind of meta, meta-confidence being its own separate confidence, the confidence in the idea that if you do start practicing, you will eventually get better at these things, and getting better at them will lead to eventual confidence. Yeah, so the better you understand how confidence works, the more confidence you can have that you will get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Makes so much sense. I mean, when I started this, well, first off, when I started reading about, you know, and getting much deeper into, um, you know, first it was evolutionary psychology and biology and other fields since then. But um, it was just, it would just take me absolutely forever to get through any book. And I just, would always tell myself five years from now, I'll be smart. (laughs) I'm not, I don't understand what the hell is going on right now. I'm having to reread everything, but five years from now, I'll, I'll have a good grasp of all this stuff. And when I started this podcast, the same thing, even people that I was otherwise comfortable talking with in real life, if it was, you know, you're talking into a microphone that's being recorded, but thousands of people are going to be listening and uh, I just had the same same with starting my stand up and these terrifying open mics. I just they were just horrible and awful, and I would bomb. And I would just be like, you're, "Yeah, you're just going to bomb for a while, and you're just going to get better. This is just how life goes." And I, I wish I had more of that attitude in a few other domains of my life. But um, yeah, the problem here is Hollywood is really not good at showing how this works. So your typical. Um, sort of hero narrative about, you know, sports or music or anything like that. There's like this loser who doesn't know what he's doing at first. And then he gets a a call to, to excellence and a challenge and, and, and should he do it or should he not? And then in the middle of the movie, two thirds into the movie, there's like the self-improvement montage, right? There's one song where he does all the work of getting better and actually practicing. And that's typically only four minutes out of 90 minutes. Right. But in real life, that's the vast majority of what builds confidence, and it takes the vast majority of time. 
Yeah, so so the wristband that the coach gave you wasn't magic after all. It was in you the whole the whole time. <laughs> no, you're gonna have to learn to. You're just gonna have to practice shooting and get back get better at basketball. Um, so I have uh, several other things. I, I'll just focus on some of the more important things that I want to talk about. But before we start wrapping up, why don't, uh, this might be a good time to just have, I have each one of my guests each week plug a charity of their choice or a organization of their choice. And what would uh, you like to give a shout out for? My favorite charity is called Give Well. And Give Well is actually kind of a charity evaluator. It was founded by a couple of hedge fund guys, um, maybe about 10 years ago. And they, looked at the charities that are out there and realized most of them are really inefficient. They don't actually do much good with their with your money. It's not just that they burn a lot of money on administrative overhead. It's that the whole strategy of most charities doesn't actually make any difference to human welfare or survival or health. So they're extremely selective. They evaluate hundreds of charities a year, and only a handful of them get the give well seal of approval um, and also you can give money directly to them and then they'll distribute it to the charities that they know and respect and, and that they've evaluated. Um, so GiveWell is part of this whole effective altruism movement that tries to be very rational and quantitative about, you know, seriously, how can we save the most lives per dollar? Mm. How can we do the most good per dollar? And I really like that approach because it's not just about signaling, oh, I'm a cool person. I'm going to give to whatever charity sounds the coolest. It's like, look, if you're doing charity, it should really about, be about the benefit to others, mm-hmm. not just about what a cool person you are. Yeah. I uh, So everyone, please go to the herewearepodcast.com website and uh, and you can check out GiveWell from there or just Google it. Um, but I, I do, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I also do kind of, uh, the other side of that is, is I, I think if people, you know, being someone who read your book Spent, which is kind of about how how a, a lot of these mating instincts drive our consumer behavior, and and I mean one of the real fun parts about the book is is what what the car you drive uh, says about you. I, I do think that. Um, Showing off being charitable is at least slightly, <laughs> slightly better and more productive than, um, than say having a Lamborghini or something like that. Uh, although I guess the the Lamborghini might be a little bit more of a straightforward signal of of wealth. Um, but since we talked about conscientious conscientiousness and openness, could we talk about uh, the other? Uh, big five and I guess you use six yeah. uh, personality traits that uh, you discussed a lot and spent and I, I mean I just think it's quite relevant to all of your books and what we've been talking about yeah the big five personality traits are really useful to know whether you're choosing a mate or choosing friends or or hiring employees or deciding who to work with or who to collaborate with um, it's a really simple way of kind of mapping out how people differ from each other. So we've already talked about two of the big five, openness and conscientiousness. The three others are agreeableness, emotional stability, and extroversion. Extroversion is pretty familiar to most people. You can be an extrovert, socially outgoing and active, or an introvert, a little bit shy and a little bit more passive. Um, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, is a great way for introverts to understand themselves and extroverts also to understand the introverts in their lives. Mm. Um, so that's a pretty straightforward, um, way that people differ from each other. Emotional stability is basically like, are you generally happy and relaxed or are you kind of neurotic and depressed and anxious? So a lot of people with mood disorders like bipolar or, or major depression, would score kind of low in emotional stability. People who are consistently just resilient and happy would score pretty high on it. Um, and then, um, extroversion, 
What is it? Go case, if I'm oh, remembering yeah. right. <laughs> and then agreeableness. Right? Oh, yeah. Agreeableness, agreeableness is basically, yeah. are you kind and altruistic and kind of tenderhearted or are you disagreeable, which is kind of assertive and selfish and a bit of an asshole and, and don't really care much about other people. Um, and generally, you know, when we're choosing mates, we like people who are agreeable and emotionally stable. And those are two huge things that, that predict like, will you stay together or will you get divorced? Hmm. And so is there with all of these, and just briefly, the, the G is just uh, intelligence, right? Which we've been talking about. Yeah. And then the sixth one would be G or general intelligence or IQ. Right. So, so much like intelligence are, are all of these other uh, traits, are they kind of one directional where you just kind of want to head this, this one direction. And the more, I mean, you did say that uh, you can read this book quiet and, and uh, that kind of sticks up for the introvert. Um, so, so what about these other traits? Is it, is there any benefit to being less agreeable? I, I mean, I suppose if you're, if you're too agreeable, these are the kind of people that maybe get taken advantage of at times. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've made the argument that that often the the best thing to be is sort of an adaptive mix of these, depending on the circumstances. So, in terms of agreeableness, you typically want a mate and a friend who's kind and understanding to you. But if there's an external threat from outside the relationship or outside the clan or outside the country, you want them to be a total badass operator who can defend you and stand up for you. Hmm. Um, now the trouble is the people who are good at being assertive and standing up don't tend to be that kind, you know, within relationships. So there's some, there's some tricky trade-offs and what seems to happen is men tend to prefer women who are a little more agreeable and women tend to prefer guys who are a little more disagreeable, i.e. bad boys or dominant guys or guys who, uh, would make good hunters or warriors. Mm. So I, I just had a, uh, a, a girl ask me recently why why I thought um, w- women are often drawn to. She was talking with one of her girlfriends about how they both find themselves sometimes drawn to assholes. And and what what in your view is some of the logic? I, I think you just started going into it a little bit there. Well, one logic is. If there's a guy in, in like prehistoric hunter-gatherer clan, if there's a guy who is so sensitive and altruistic that he can't even kill an animal, then you're going to starve. You're not going <laughs> to get any meat. You're not going to be able to grow a big baby with a big brain. You're, you're not going to get the, the protein and fat that you need. And it's, it's hard to go out and kill an animal and butcher it and bring back the carcass. If you're super sensitive, you've got to have a little bit of a uh, a badass streak to do that. Mm-hmm. There was also a lot of group versus group warfare. Your clan was always under threat from other clans and, and the dangerous males there. So you have to be able to kind of man up and, and fight and defend your your women and kids. Or else you you all go extinct or your kids and you go extinct and your women get abducted. So in terms of hunting and warfare, you need to be kind of assertive and disagreeable sometimes. Um, The other thing, though, is within your clan, you know, in prehistory, if you were kind of an obnoxious asshole and badass and nobody had killed you yet, that's pretty good testimony that you're pretty formidable, Mm. right? Nowadays, any frat boy can be kind of a a disagreeable asshole and typically they won't get killed right but in prehistory they would have been they would have been ostracized or killed already um so if if you've got that personality and you're still surviving that's kind of a cue instinctively to women that says there must be something about him there must be something (laughs) he must be formidable how is this guy not dead exactly (laughs) that's awesome uh, so it, I, I'm just now thinking that it may have been a little unfair of me to tease my audience with this. I was hoping maybe you could just give me a few examples of, of this logic about what your car 
uh, might say about you because it's just uh, such a fun idea. And uh, I, I mean, I think this is something that a few of us intuitively, many people seem to intuit, you hear about, you know, the midlife crisis mobile and and that sort of thing. And this is something that you address quite a bit in Spent, which I encourage all my listeners to go out and check out all of Jeffrey's book. But if you if you can just brief a little summary of that. I mean, the basic idea is people select products and goods and services that they think will will show off the personal traits that they have to potential mates, to potential friends, to neighbors, whatever. And so if you're going out to buy a car, you've always got choices, even if your budget is quite limited. You know, do I get the sports car, the SUV, the minivan, the family sedan? What what kind of car do I get? What color? What accessories, etc.? And People kind of intuitively know that, oh, if you're some some guy driving a sports car around, you're probably single. You're probably kind of open to casual sex. Mm-hmm. And those inferences are actually empirically valid. That's true. That's Those are the kind of people who drive sports cars. How did you go about testing this? I didn't test it myself. Other people right. have tested it, like uh, Gad Sad, who you interviewed right. a while ago. Um yeah, people make these inferences. Mm. Whereas if you're in a minivan, people will probably rightly make the inference married with kids, suburban, mom or dad, soccer mom, whatever. Um, and so some people get kind of strategic about this. You know, even if you're a single guy open to casual sex, but you think you want to present a slightly more reputable appearance, then you'll you'll go for the sedan rather than the sports car. Mm. Um, because it'll it'll kind of strategically signal uh, I, I'm not just all about Tinder. I'm I'm potentially open to a serious girlfriend, and I'm fun. And I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm and still I'm fun. more fun than minivan guy, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, these are so so. What might like a a big um, what, what might a monster truck uh, say, say about somebody? Well, I made the argument that like the really big, intimidating SUVs and pickup trucks are basically signaling disagreeableness, yeah, testosterone, formidability, aggressiveness, assertiveness, and the guys who get them know damn well that that's what they're signaling because mm-hmm. you know it's it'll often be the Ford F two fifty pickup truck with the gun rack. Right, right, right. You don't see a whole lot of minivans with the gun. Yeah, you don't see a lot of Priuses with the American or with the with the Confederate flag (laughs) on the top of it. Yeah. Um, Well, that's awesome. This was uh, very entertaining, and I'm so happy that after after reading your books and telling all sorts of people about you, that I was able to get you as a guest. So thank you, Jeffrey Miller, for joining me on the program. I really enjoyed it. And thank you, listeners, for being curious, and I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Next week, doing uh, my fourth charity episode, uh, I'm interviewing Gene Bauer, who is a really big get for me. He is on The Daily Show, and he has a couple great books and is the founder and CEO of Farm Sanctuary out in, uh, well, I've visited the one in L.A., but uh, several locations. And so we're going to be talking about um, how a plant-based diet could have a positive effect on the world. We talk about um, being vegan, which I am not. So uh, it's always good to um, hear other people's points of view. We talk about animal rights and um, a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, I'm still figuring out how often I'm going to do these charity episodes. I really do believe that it will be helpful to talk with people like this that are a little more hands-on on on some of these issues because ultimately uh, a lot of this research and the stuff that we're learning about um the reason why it's so important is because it can help create a better world for us and help inform our decisions and everything else so so i'm hoping that this will um just just show another side of the picture other than um just talking with academics every week. So yeah, I hope you feel the same. You can always send me feedback to the Here We Are podcast, 
scientificsocialdemocrat.com website. You can go on there and click on Ask a Scientist to learn more. Um, and yeah, that's about it. Thank you all for listening, especially the ones that listened all the way to the end right here without stopping. You're my favorite. So don't tell anyone else that I said that about them. Um, I, I get it. The episode was over. They didn't care who's coming up next week. They, they went to the next episode. They stopped listening. I get it. I've been there, but uh, I got nothing against those people. They still listen to the episode. You know, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're fine human beings. But you, you listening to this right now, you're my favorite. So thank you very much. See you next week. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a, I'm a bat. bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my. <laughs> <laughs>